Let me pray for us and just ask God to meet us in the word as we're going to be asking the Lord to prepare our hearts for communion uh, as we study the scriptures today. So Father, I pray for me right now. Give me the, the heart that you want me to have and give me the wisdom. And Lord, would you bring the power of your Holy Spirit upon me and upon us here and that this passage would become alive to us and would lead us to the cross uh, during communion and that we could receive from you everything that you want to give and what we need from you so desperately. So come with your power now, I pray, that no one would leave here, not me, not any of us, would leave here unchanged as we open up our hearts to see your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 61. Now, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We want you all to have a copy so you can study along with us. We're going to be looking at a couple different passages today. So you're going to want to have a Bible accessible to you. Isaiah chapter 61. It's on page 620 in the Bibles that we're passing out. As I was thinking about this passage, it struck me that that this, this book that you're holding in your hands, the Bible, tells the true story of the universe... It tells the true story of planet Earth, and this book, the Bible, tells the true story of your life. This is the true story. It all starts in eternity past when God chose to create a universe and a world and and people. That's why you're here. And he created so that he could share with us the joy that he has in himself, the joy of who he is he wanted to share with us. And so he created Adam and Eve. You know the story. Just think about it. He gave them life. He gave them bodies. He gave them, these are all free, lavish gifts. He gave them each other. And he placed them in this paradise where all of their needs were completely met. And he did all this to show them and to show us that he is flawlessly good, perfectly wise, and infinitely powerful. That's who our God is. That's what his purpose. And so he said to Adam and Eve, this will continue forever if you will surrender to me as your creator and trust my perfect goodness. This paradise will continue forever. But what did Adam and Eve do? They did the same thing I did and the same thing you've done. And that is they refused because they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be in control. And so they turned their backs on They're perfectly good, God. They're infinitely powerful, God. They're flawlessly wise, God. They turned their backs on God and walked away from him. And that's what each of us has done as well. This is the story of the universe. This is what's really going on here. Now, God is good and wise and loving. He's also just and righteous. And so because of our turning our backs on God, God withdrew his presence from planet Earth and allowed the world to come under the curse of sin. And the results of that has been absolutely tragic. He withdrew his presence from us, the world came under the curse of sin, and and he's condemned us all justly and righteously to eternal punishment. And so, because of our sin, I mean, our lives could have been rich, rich with the joy of knowing God, fellowshipping with God, worshiping God. But because of our sin, now we're all poor, spiritually poor. No connection to God. That's where our sin left us. Our hearts could have been glad, whole, 
restored, full of joy and knowing God's love and care. But because of sin, because we've all turned away from God, now our hearts have been broken. There's, there's broken hearts in this room as a result of sin and sin's effects. I mean, we could have been free, free from lust and greed and racism and oppression. But because we, we turned our backs on God and walked away, we walked into sin and came under the power of lust and greed and racism and oppression. But now here's where the story gets really interesting. God could have just left us there. But he didn't. He did not. He could have just left us as poor, heartbroken captives awaiting eternal judgment. But in Isaiah 61, we read that God did something astonishing. Let's take a look. Are you there? Isaiah 61, again, that's page 620. In the Bibles we passed out, what does God do? In in Isaiah 61, we read that God is going to do something. This was written in 700 B.C., We read that God is going to do something absolutely astonishing. And what we read in these verses is we hear someone speaking who has been sent by God to the earth to help us. We hear someone speaking in these verses, sent by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent to the earth to help us. And look what this person says starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's the spiritually poor, those who've been cut off from God. Good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, those whose hearts are empty and broken without God. That's that's us. We're, We're the poor, we're the brokenhearted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So that's those who have turned from God, become enslaved to sin's power. Again, that's all of us. So here in verse 1, we see God doesn't leave us as poor, heartbroken captives, but what God does is he sends someone, he's going to send someone empowered by the Holy Spirit, who's going to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, and set free those who are under the bondage of sin. Okay, keep reading in verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, over the the cost and the guilt of sin, to grant those who mourn in Zion. That's a reference to the people of Israel, but this, this passage has implications for Gentiles as well, all of us, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, which is a sign of mourning, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Okay, now the whole rest of the chapter unfolds this, and just for the sake of time, we're going to rest right here. Read the rest of the chapter on your own this afternoon, but get the picture of what God is promising to do here. Because we've turned from God, we are poor, heartbroken, enslaved to sin. But God promises to send someone. I'm going to send someone who's going to speak good news to the spiritually poor. Someone who's going to bind up those whose hearts are broken because of sin. I'm going to send someone who's going to declare and proclaim liberty to those who've been captured by by sin. He's going to proclaim God's favor to those who receive him. And he's going to proclaim God's vengeance, God's wrath, and God's judgment to those who do not receive him. And those who do receive him, this is an amazing picture 
will be transformed into oaks of righteousness. You know oaks, right? Oaks. Massive oaks, strong oaks of righteousness. They'll be the planting of the Lord. So transformed from poor, heartbroken, captives of sin by God's power, by God's grace through Jesus Christ, transformed into oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Okay, so so think about the people of Israel. 700 BC, reading these words, hearing these words. They'd be wondering, who is this person going to be? When is this going to happen? Right? Because there you are, you're Israel, and you're looking at, at the, most, the majority of the nation of Israel who've turned from God, and you're looking at the world, and you're seeing they're poor, there's spiritual poverty here. People don't know God. People are cut off from God. We've all turned our backs on God. They're seeing the, the spiritual poverty in the world. They're seeing the, the spiritual heartbroken condition from people who've, who've turned from God. There's heartbreak all over the world. When's he going to come who's going to bind up the brokenhearted? When's he going to come who's going to speak good news to those who are spiritually poor? When's he going to come who's going to set people free from the oppression, the sin that we've all chosen for ourselves? When's he going to come? So who is this sent one described in Isaiah 61, and when's he going to come? To answer that, turn to Luke chapter 4. This is powerful. Luke 4 and that's page 859 in the Bibles we just passed out. Who is this sent one and when does he come? Luke 4, starting with verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, on the Sabbath day, and, as he, and he stood up to read. They'd ask someone to, to stand up to read and then to teach, so he... This is what he did. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Here's Isaiah. Read something this morning for us from Isaiah. Okay, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, just a side comment, you just break in here. If you're reading and thinking carefully, you've noticed that Jesus does not mention binding up the brokenhearted here. There's lots of theories as to why, and I don't think anybody really knows, but because that was what was in Isaiah 61, and because Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, I'm taking it that he's intending all of that to be part of what he's communicating here. And I'll keep reading in verse 20. So just imagine that the room would have gotten silent as Jesus says, 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Silence fell over the room, right? So look at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The teacher would sit in front of them. and See, he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. No one was checking their messages. No one was yawning. Just like, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Awesome. Don't you love that? So he couldn't be clearer here. He is the one who was speaking back in Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus was speaking back there. He's God. He was back there. He's always been. He's the one anointed by the Spirit who would be, and in this passage, is there, sent by God to help Israel, to help the Gentiles, to help the nations, to help us. So what this means is that Jesus here is clearly teaching that he is the Messiah. I mean, all through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has told us about he's coming, the Messiah's coming, he's coming, he's going to help us, he's going to be born of a virgin, he's fully God, Isaiah 11. He's going to suffer being punished with God's wrath that we deserve for our sin. The Messiah will take that upon himself so we can be healed, saved, redeemed, restored into relationship with God. The Messiah's coming. And then this passage here in Isaiah chapter 61. Now, I want to encourage you, let this correct a possible misunderstanding that maybe you have or that I know lots of people in our culture have about Jesus. A lot of people think that Jesus himself never claimed to be the Messiah, but this was an idea cooked up by the early church and kind of imposed upon Jesus after the fact. But can you see in this passage, Jesus himself says, this is me. Isaiah 61 is me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I am the Messiah that was described all through the book of Isaiah. So Jesus being the Messiah was not something that the early church came up with. He taught that he was and is the Messiah. So who is the sent one? It's Jesus. So Isaiah 61, 700 B.C., Jesus came 700 years later, born of a virgin, the Messiah here on earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and descended to heaven. And now we're here in 2011. He came 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the Messiah. He was to come, Isaiah 61. He has come from our perspective now. Now, let me just dig a little deeper on this, and that is, did Jesus do these things? Did he preach good news to the poor? Did he bind up the brokenhearted? And did he... Free people from sin's power. Three specifics I want to focus on. And let's just take a look. Did Jesus preach good news to the poor? Now, the word poor in both Hebrew and Greek can have two meanings. It can mean spiritual, I'm sorry, it can mean a financial poverty, first of all. Okay, But it also, in different contexts, can mean spiritual poverty. We're not all financially poor, but we are all spiritually poor. And, and what Jesus does in his ministry, is he speaks to both the financially poor, those who were, and to the spiritually poor, everyone, and he brings good news, that their sins can be forgiven through what he was going to do on the cross, and they can be restored to God. Now, let me give you one example, Mark chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there, Mark 2, page 837. One of many instances of this, but I just want you to feel the poignancy of this 
incidents. Mark 2, page 837. This is, a, remember the famous story of the paralyzed man. If you were paralyzed in that culture, you would have been financially poor. Okay, this man was financially poor. He also was spiritually poor, just like all of us have been, because he had turned his back on God, just like we all have, and he needed to be forgiven for his sins, somehow, some way, so that he could be reconciled to God. And so you know the story, four guys carry him to the house where Jesus is teaching. The house is packed, they can't get in. You know the story. So they go up on the roof, and roofs could be torn apart, they're mud, and, and they lowered him down, and Jesus saw their faith. He saw the four guys' faith, and he saw the the paralyzed man's faith. He saw, this man is trusting me to save him, to be his Lord, to be his heart-satisfying treasure. And so look at what Jesus says to him. Very simple statement in verse 5 of Mark chapter 2. When Jesus saw their faith, the paralyzed man's faith, and the faith of his friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now just... Let that statement blow your mind. Here Jesus speaks to this man and says, all of your sins, all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins, they're all forgiven. How can Jesus say that? Who's Jesus to say that? There's two reasons he can say that. One is because in a few months, he would walk to Jerusalem where he would know that he was going to be scourged 39 times and beaten and nailed to the cross and in that whole process God's wrath against this paralyzed man's sin was going to be poured out upon Jesus and he willingly was going to take on God's wrath against this man's sin he was going to experience it in the place of this paralyzed man so the paralyzed man wouldn't have to and here this paralyzed man is trusting Jesus and so Jesus can say son your sins are forgiven that's one reason Jesus can say that is because he was going to die on the cross and pay for this man's sin a second reason he could say this is because Jesus is God okay Jesus no man can walk into somebody else and say all your, God's forgiven all your sins unless God has said that and here God is saying it because Jesus is God now there are some skeptics in the crowd Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Words cheap, right? Jesus knew what they were thinking. So you know the story. You know what Jesus did? He says, let me, let me show you that I'm God. Okay? You're doubting whether I'm God or whether I have the authority to forgive sins. Let me show you that I'm God. Paralyzed man, stand up and walk. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he's, he's standing up and walking. Jesus is God. Displays that by raising the paralyzed man from the dead. So, so here's the deal. All of us, because of our sin, have been under guilt. Okay, we've... And Jesus speaks good news. Good news to those who are spiritually poor. We've all been under guilt and therefore spiritually poor because God has lifted his presence from this earth. He's lifted his presence from us because of our sinfulness. And some of you maybe have never in your life come to the place where you said, I want to receive Jesus Christ into my life now as my Lord and as my Savior and as my heart-satisfying treasure. And if you've never done that, then you are poor, like I was and everybody here has been. But see, today, right now, if you will see who Jesus is, own up to who Jesus is, and receive him into your life as your Savior, and bend the knee before him in faith as your Lord, and welcome him to satisfy your heart as your treasure, if you will do that, then 
then Jesus will speak good news to you and you will receive forgiveness of all your sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins, all of your sins, forgiven. Some of you uh, maybe have received Christ into your life in times past, but in recent months, you've turned your back on him and have come back under the, the feeling this guilt of sin. And you're poor then too right now, in a sense. And, but if you'll come back and say, Jesus, forgive me, I'm back, then you will be assured once again that your sins are all forgiven and he will address your spiritual poverty. Let me just read you this quote by John Wesley. Here's how he experienced this. John Wesley is one of the men who, in the 1700s, filled England with the gospel. And here's how he experienced Jesus speaking good news to him when he was poor. He says, I saw Jesus, Jesus the Savior of sinners, Jesus the Savior for me. I saw him as the gift of the love of God for me. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And I knew, yes, I knew that God had forgiven me all my sins and my soul was filled with gladness and I wept for joy. So Jesus preached good news to John Wesley and his spiritual poverty was lifted and the spiritual riches of a heart experience of the living Jesus and assurance of forgiveness came. So did Jesus preach good news to the poor? Absolutely. Now, second, did he bind up the brokenhearted? Turn to Luke chapter 7. This is one of my favorite passages. Sometime when you're discouraged or you're struggling, you're feeling low, turn to this passage and just pray through this passage to see Jesus afresh. The Lord used this about four weeks ago. I distinctly remember as I was feeling pretty discouraged and just showed me Jesus and his compassion and Helped me. It's page 863 in the Bibles we passed out, by the way. Luke chapter 7. Look what happened starting in verse 11. Did Jesus bind up the brokenhearted? Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So it's a funeral procession. A man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now just think about this this widow's situation, okay? She is experiencing having her heart broken by the effects of sin, okay? Sin is the reason there's death in the world. Her husband had died. Her only son had died. And in that culture, you'd be completely destitute, given that socioeconomic situation. So here she's experiencing the heartbreak caused by sin. Now, some of you have experienced great heartbreak as a result of sin. Your own sin has caused you heartbreak. Others' sin against you has caused you heartbreak. Sin breaks hearts right and left. It just leaves broken hearts in its wake. And this woman is an example of that. And look at what happens in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Don't you just love that? Jesus saw her. Jesus Christ, Son of God, who's always been, who always will be, Lord of glory. 
to whom everything was created through him and for him. And he sees this one solitary widow whose only son had died and he felt compassion for her. I love that. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the buyer on which the body was being carried of her only son. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. See the picture there? So Jesus bound up her broken heart by raising her son from the dead and restoring her son to her. And the exact same thing can happen to you. No matter how much your heart has been broken by the effects of sin, Jesus Christ can and will bind up, heal, restore your broken heart. Now, sometimes he does that by changing your outer circumstances like he does here. Right? He raised her son from the dead, restored the son to her. Sometimes he does that by changing your, your outer circumstances, but every time he will do that by pouring his heart-healing love into your heart and restoring you, mending you, binding you, comforting you, caring for you. Every time he will do that by bringing his presence upon you and as you feel the experiential reality of his love, your broken heart will be made whole. That's what he does. And here's how George Whitfield experienced this. Another one of my heroes. I love this quote. Here's how he experienced this hundreds of years ago. He says, but oh, with what joy... Joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory, was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Anybody use the word disconsolate this last week? I didn't. What does disconsolate mean? Heartbroken, right? Just a fancy word for heartbroken. So, full assurance of faith, abiding since the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate, heartbroken soul. So Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. Nothing else binds up broken hearts. Jesus binds up broken hearts. Third, did Jesus set people free? Turn to Luke 19. This is another one of my favorite passages. This is the story of Zacchaeus. Luke 19, page 878. Now, before Zacchaeus met Jesus, who knows who Zacchaeus was? We little man, we little man was he, right? Like the old Sunday school song, climbed up into a sycamore tree, the Lord that he could see, or something like that. Anyway, Zacchaeus was a greedy, dishonest tax collector who was enslaved to the love of money. He was a captive to money, bondage to money. But look at what happened to Zacchaeus after he met Jesus. Verse 8, Luke 19. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of my estate, give it away. Gone. Unbelievable. The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
Okay, what had happened to Zacchaeus before he met Jesus, greedy, enslaved to the love of money, dishonest, after he's giving away half of his estate and recompensing anyone four times if he'd stolen from them? What happened between this and this? He saw Jesus. He met Jesus Christ. So here's what happens. When you see Jesus in his glory and his love and his goodness and his reality and his resurrection power and his cross sin paying death when you see who Jesus Christ is your heart is so filled and satisfied greed just like slinks away in shame greed can't compete with that lust just like dissolves lust can't compete with beholding Jesus the satisfaction that comes into your heart from knowing Jesus Christ destroys any other possible satisfaction that's tempting and drawing you away. And that's how Jesus sets captives free from sin. An old theologian called it the expulsive power of a new affection. Right? You've had old affections, desires for money or, you know, wrong sexual pleasure or food or this or that or the other thing. How do you get freed from those? Not by gritting your teeth and saying, I'm not going to desire that anymore. It's not Christianity. It's that there's a better satisfaction It's that you see Jesus Christ and why would I mess with this stuff? Look at who I get to know and walk with and fellowship with. And since power is broken that way, Jesus sets the captives free. Let me tell you about a woman. I'm going to call her name Carol just to keep her anonymous. She was in a marriage and over the years she'd grown more and more distant to this man. I'm sure he wasn't perfect, but I don't think that was the main problem. If I remember the story right, she'd grown more and more distant to her husband. And not just distant, but she'd grown to hate him. She wanted nothing to do with him. She hated being in the same room with him. Grudges had built up, anger had built up. You know, just little things can become a huge problem. She was so angry, uh, uh, frustrated, in pain, that she was on the verge of committing suicide. But one day, she opened up her Bible... And read Romans 15, 13. Don't turn there now, but the first lines are, May the God of hope. And she just stopped there. God is a God of of hope. And all of a sudden, she just started to see that there may be his hope for her and for there being a change in her. And so she was just brought over the next period of days and weeks. I'm not sure. I don't want to overstate it. I'm not sure exactly how quickly this all happened. But she was brought to to just come before the Lord Jesus and bend the knee before him and say, if you can help me, I surrender to you. If you can change my heart, please do. Change me. Whatever you want me to do, would you bring it about in me? And she started to pray and to read the scriptures and started to worship. And slowly but surely, things started to change. And here's how she ends up describing the final change. She wrote, something absolutely amazing happened. I'm in love with my husband. I enjoy being with him. I mean, that that was huge, okay? I enjoy being with him. I depend on him as a friend. He's my favorite lunch date. (laughs) And I find myself wanting to give him a hug and a kiss when he's watching television, okay? Say, turn off the TV. Just go ahead and hug and kiss. That's all right. But this is a profound change that took place here. Jesus set her free from the anger and the vengefulness and the hatred that she was experiencing for her husband and totally transformed her heart. And Jesus can do the same for you. I guarantee it. I I have seen and am regularly seeing Jesus put to death sin in my life. 
And that's going to continue until heaven because we don't become perfect until heaven. I, I don't want to have you think that what this means is that when you, is that Jesus can like make you sinless in this life. We are not sinless in this life. We fight against sin in this life, tooth and nail, taking no prisoners. We kill sin in this life. We are ruthless against sin in this life. We will always be fighting sin until glory. Total final liberation. But see, if you have stopped fighting and if you are under some oppression of sin, if some sin has you in its grip and you are regularly being defeated by this area of sin, Jesus Christ will set you free from that now if if you'll surrender and say, help me. You don't need to try to change yourself first and then come to Jesus. You can never do that. You can't change yourself first. You come, this is the beauty of the gospel. You come to him as you are. You're thinking, yuck. Can I like take a, a sin shower first? No, it won't work. You'll step in the shower. Not... Yuck, okay, it's the same. It just doesn't work, okay? You gotta come to him as you are. Part of the deal of coming to Jesus is you have to realize all you're bringing to the table is your sin. The sign over, over Jesus' door is sinners only. Oh, well, where's the door for me? That's the door for you. And that's amazing news. Because that is you. And that is me. And so we come as we are. We say, Jesus, help me. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to bring to the table except my sin. Would you have mercy upon me? Would you accept me? Would you love me? And in his mercy and in his acceptance and in his love, he says, I am so glad you're here. This is why I came. Right? You know the story of the prodigal son? The moment the father sees his way where it's off in the distance, the father's running towards him. My boy! Running towards him. And that's what happens with Jesus. Okay, so let's have the band come on up here. And let's get ready for communion. So here's what I'm praying God will do this morning. Um, three things in particular. I mean, communion is a time where we remember Jesus' death on the cross. It's a time where we... Say, I want to meet you afresh, Lord Jesus, and receive whatever I need from the cross right now today. I want to worship you. I want to surrender afresh to you. I want to trust you. But there's three specific things that I, I want to just impress upon us that, that you, y- y- there's, there's one of these three that you need, okay? You may need Jesus this morning to, to bring good news to you because there's, there's some poverty, there's some guilt that's come into your life or your heart that you're under and you are feeling a distance and separation from God because truth be known, you haven't been surrendered to Jesus Christ in faith. And so if you're, if you're trusting Jesus, I would just encourage you to come and say, I want to fully surrender to you now, Jesus. Take this area that's been a block between me and you, take it, I surrender it to you, crush it, kill it, remove it, destroy it, and just assure me afresh of forgiveness. Or this may be the time, maybe this will be the first time that that you've received Jesus into your life. This may be the first time that you've taken communion, receiving Jesus, and that which is what communion should be. Communion is, is for those who are trusting Jesus Christ. But this may be the time this morning right now. If you're just trusting Jesus Christ for the first time right now, then partake of communion and let him speak the good news of forgiveness to you because of what he did on the cross. So some of you are under this poverty, the spiritual poverty of guilt, either because you've never been saved or because you've been saved, but you've, you've drifted. And, and ask Jesus this morning to speak good news to you. Let that be the, the focal point of your time of communion. 
Others of you have broken hearts. All kinds of different ways that can, that can happen. And maybe you've tried to find other healing of your broken heart in other places. But see, your heart was created to be healed by Jesus' love. By Jesus' death on the cross, by his resurrection, by beholding his glory is how your heart will be most healed. So come to him and say, heal me. I've committed sin. That's how my heart's been broken. Others have sinned against me. That's how my heart's been broken. Would you pour your love into my heart? Forgive me for my sin. I trust your death on the cross. Come and save me afresh. Lord, meet me now. And he will bind up the brokenhearted in this room right now during this communion time. Uh, others of you, you're, you're under some grip of sin. Lust, greed. Could be self-righteousness. Right? That's, a, that's a nasty sin, Right? That's where, you know, you, you don't know God, but you just, you go to church, you try to be good, you're hoping you're getting on God's good side, but you don't know God at all. That's self-righteousness. It's a terrible bondage of sin. You can set you free from that one too. But whatever it might be, lay that sin down at his feet. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. Say, I repent of this now. I turn to you and trust you, Jesus Christ, as my Lord, my Savior, my treasure. Change me, free me, forgive me, help me. And he will do that. He will do that. So here's how we're going to partake of communion. There's tables at your left and at your right. And Dave's going to go ahead and lead us into a worship set. And at any time during this worship set, come on up, take the bread and the cup. You can go back to your seat. You can kneel down somewhere if you want to. This is a time between you and the Lord. And I'm not going to come up and lead us to partake altogether. I'd like you, I want this to be a very individual time. So you're coming before the Lord Jesus. You've got the bread. You've got the cup. You know that he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. So you're there. And when you're ready at the time, you go ahead on your own and receive from Jesus Christ by partaking the bread and the cup. So anytime during these next couple songs. So Father, I pray for your power to be upon us right now in, in, a, in a very rich, Christ-centered cross-focused way. Lord, we all desperately need to meet you at the cross today. I pray for some here who've, who've never trusted you. Lord, let today be the day that they turn from their sin and put their trust in you and receive all that you have for them. I pray for those who've trusted you before but have been wayward, have become discouraged. Lord, would you meet them? Would you restore them? Would you draw them to yourself? Do a mighty work now, we ask, during this time of communion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.